Good morning, in town. Uh, my name is Steve Yates. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. I'd like to welcome you to the worship of God's people again this morning. Um, we have uh, been in a series just since last week called Rewired, Intentional Practices for Spiritual Health. And before we get into things this morning, we're going to watch a video from some people who are very dear to me talk about the meaning of those intentional practices in their own life. The spiritual disciplines I think of most are solitude. Um, I, take a, I get up early and I take a walk around the neighborhood and I focus usually on a, a verse of scripture or um, one of the questions from uh, the catechism. Um, and it, it brings me sort of together with God in a, in a very wonderful way. The other one is to be at In Town in Worship. Um, if I'm gone a couple weeks because of a family holiday or a vacation or something, and I come back in sort of a reverse way, I realize that I have really missed it and that I've missed the teaching and the community and the worship. Developing spiritual disciplines for me came from brokenness. Um, about eight years ago, I got to the end of myself, and it was a deep, deep time of me crawling back to God. Not that I had veered from Him, but I did not know the depth of my need of Him. And um, with what I was going through, which was affecting my health, it was affecting me emotionally, it was affecting me relationally, um, I kept having the word come to me of surrender. There was this realization that I am surrendering to God who created me and loves me more than anybody else and beyond what I can possibly imagine. And it was he let me go to the very end of myself so that I could find him there. I'd say one of the challenges with spiritual disciplines is keeping at them or keeping it going. Um, we just have a tendency to get busy or miss something or have an illness and then uh, we sort of get off track. And um, not that being perfectly on track is, is the end goal. Um, really, the end goal for me is a relationship with my Savior, but um, it, it's, just, it's just hard to stay on track. I would say for me, when I find myself wavering in my spiritual discipline, spending time in His Word and going back to those truths, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Um, the Lord can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. In Psalm 139, when he knew me, he formed me in my mother's womb. I mean, all of that is pure grace. Um, that's usually what draws me back. And then it's literally like a releasing for me. Um, if we're not filled up in the Lord, then all we're doing is giving of ourself, we're not giving of who he made us to be through him. And those are two really different things. So I've had to give myself permission to pull away and permission to be still so that when I do go out, it's because I've been filled up in my time with, with Christ, not just because I was stepping out because I have the ability to do something. There's a refreshment that comes from spiritual disciplines. Uh, whether it's reading the Word or being in fellowship with uh, believers or uh, uh, you mentioned communion and worship, 
These are all things that in a very deep way refresh us. And so there's a refreshment I feel in participating in spiritual disciplines. All right, with that, we can all go home. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thompsons, for that. Oh, like I said, we have been a series just since last week called Rewired. Um, last week's sermon was mostly getting the chess pieces out of the bag and putting them on the board. And this week and in the couple of weeks to come, what we're going to do is we're going to look at different categories or chunks or families of these intentional practices and talk about them, talk about why we need them, talk about their relationship. But to do so, let's, let's remind ourselves a couple of those pieces that we talked about at the very beginning um, of last week's sermon. We started out with this idea that everything is spiritual. What we mean by everything is spiritual, not as some kind of weird quasi-pantheism, but, but simply a, a belief that we are not segmented, compartmentalized human beings. So that means that while, yes, there are some intentional practices that will affect our spiritual lives, there are tons of non-intentional practices that are affecting all the different aspects of our lives, spiritual but also emotional, physical, mental, every single day. So to a point, it can be really helpful for us to have a level of discernment and know, you know how are the things that that I'm doing to, to rest, to watch television, to listen to music, the decisions I'm making in working or in parenting or in retirement, how do all of these things affect how I am being shaped spiritually? Of course, the problem with that at the same time is that there are things that we can't avoid. We all swim in the same cultural soup. And so we talked about how our modern culture, which is very much dominated here in the West by our consumerism and by our individuality um, with these ideas of efficiency and effectiveness. We are a people who are always wanting to do things faster and better. We want to get the job done well and we want to get the job done quickly so we can have more time either to do another job well or to go and rest. But even there, we're worried about resting well and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But that also imports some negative things or some poisonous things into our view of intentional practices or of spiritual disciplines. We move into this idea of spiritual disciplines from a very utilitarian perspective that if we can just learn more or if we can just read more or if we can just work on a skill of prayer or a skill of Bible study or a skill of whatever, that will somehow equate to, in some contractual sense, growth in our spiritual lives. And that's not how this works. We can actually even take that a step further and we move into kind of a performance mentality where we believe that this is actually what God expects of me. God expects me to be this wonderful, great, awesome Christian, and if I'm not, he is deeply displeased with me. Now, on one hand, it is true. God does have expectations of his people, things he has called us to. But he has never called us to those things without empowering us to do them. And he has not called us to those things as the measure of how he will love us, of how he will accept us. God accepts us 
because of Jesus, because of his love for us, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, God literally, it's, it's like the reverse curve on a test. You always hate the kid in class who breaks the curve for everyone else. Jesus sets the curve for everyone else who comes to God. He judges us not based on our own performance, but on Jesus' performance. And that is incredibly freeing for us. We need to carry that with us into a discussion of intentionality, of discipline, of practice, because if we don't, we will fall victim to these various things that dupe us really into believing that things, we believe things like this, like I'm praying and it feels like God isn't listening to my prayers, therefore I must not be praying hard enough, or I must not be praying good enough, or I might not be saying the right words. Or how many of us, without, without ever actually espousing this theology, think that if something bad happens to us in our day, it happened to us because we woke up late and forgot to do our devotional with God that morning. I mean, that math right there will mess us up, especially as we move into seasons of our life where that kind of, of time has to be put in different places and different ways. Instead, what God offers is an invitation to his people, yes, to grow incredibly deep and incredibly close to him, and yes, to do so through practices and disciplines that um, the Christian church have used for thousands of years, that people much wiser than you or I can teach us, that he's modeled for us in his word, but to do that as an invitation, as as, as a welcome, not as a bar for us to jump over. And so, as the, the late Eugene Peterson once called it, a long obedience in the same direction, that we can have patience, we can have freedom, not a freedom to say, yeah, my spirituality doesn't matter, but a, a freedom to be excited about pursuing it, knowing that he receives us as we are and he receives us excitedly, welcoming us into a lifelong pursuit of him. That's what we bring to the table when we talk about spiritual disciplines, when we talk about intentional practices. So because this is a topical series and we're going to be bouncing around some in lieu of a scripture reading, I have asked Luke, and, and he's been amazing in putting together a, a way to prepare our hearts for these four weeks. So I'd like to do that again this week. This is based on Jesus' words in John chapter 15. I'll begin us, and then let's pray this together. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in in me. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. We long to remain in you. If we bear any good fruit, no matter how small, it is because of your promise that you will remain in us. We trust in you and not in our own work or striving to draw closer to God. Let's pray. 
So Jesus, we say those words with our mouths. We pray desperately that you, Holy Spirit, would help them settle down deep into our hearts and our minds and our lives, that we could simultaneously be drawn to you with a passion and a fervor and intensity um, of, of work, of the things that we often put such efforts into, and yet also to pursue that both with a love for you emotionally, but also a knowledge, a, a resounding sense that you love us no matter how we're able to come to you. You love us. You have accepted us because of Jesus. And you welcome what amounts to a crayoned drawing on a church bulletin as a masterpiece. You accept our worship and you accept our seeking after you, God. Thank you for this. We pray this in your name and for your glory this morning. Amen. All right, just like last week, let's talk a little bit about two things this morning. Let's talk about our world, and let's talk about the gospel. First of all, let's talk about our world. It is, these ideas that I said are shaping us, right? Efficiency, effectiveness, consumerism, not in a political sense, just in a kind of pace of life sense, are fascinating how quickly they have changed. For much of modern history, uh, actually pre-modern history, believe it or not, um, people, uh, anthropologists and um, scientists believe that people actually probably only worked for between three and five hours a day for thousands of years. Now, this was still hard, perhaps even back-breaking work, but the reality is when you are spending energy to go out and find food, to hunt to gather, and then to return back home, you can only do that for a short window of time each day, and you can only do that for a short window of time before you have enough to, to not need to go out again and again and again. Now, this changed as agriculture and agrarian society rose up, but even then, if you, if you know a farmer, um, many of you might know some farmers. I didn't for a long time until I moved out west for a short time and actually had elders in the church I was a part of that were actual cowboys, like not buy the Stetson off of the rack somewhere, but like kick the dung off of the actual boots or like forget to take their spurs off type cowboys before they came to session meetings. Um, I realized that, that, that farmers work a lot, but also not because work has to be seasonal, right? Things change, and there are full seasons of life where work can't happen. And so actually for much of history in our world, things were very, very cyclic in terms of rest and in terms of work and back and forth. The Industrial Revolution towards the 17 and 1800s made this a massive spike, and we became an incredibly unhealthy culture. But believe it or not, worldwide... Numbers are actually going down. People are working less than they used to by the hour. Now, it's not as much as scientists thought. In the 1950s, Popular Mechanics magazine, um, in an op-ed, believed that we would all be working less than 20 hours a week by now. Um, full-time. Full-time would be 20 hours a week or less as technology made things easier. 
Technology has made certain things easier, but the flip side of that is between 1950 and today, the average American worker has increased productivity by 450%. Now, that is not a knock at all on your grandfather or grandmother. It's just the reality that because of all of the things we have, the technologies we can do, the communication we have, we can do a whole lot more with the hours that we have. Why isn't our life 450% better than it was in 1950? I'm sure that we could spend the rest of our lives answering that question or failing to answer it. But I at least want to offer some, some sobriety into that laughter. I realize Luca made these things more readable for you, which means they are less readable for me there. It's okay. You matter more. In 2019, one in five U.S. adults suffered from mental illness. I actually intentionally picked 2019 statistics for this rather than giving you something any newer because um, if you actually think somehow mental illness got less severe in the pandemic, I have a timeshare I'd like to sell you. Um, (laughs) One in ten youth will between 12 and 18 be diagnosed with severe depressive disorder in our country. In October of 20, uh, this is actually 2022, that's a typo, that's okay, 2022, um, 27% of adults report that most days they are so stressed they cannot function. American Psychological Association just said a few months ago that statistic. The World Health Organization worries, based on data from 2000 to 2016, they worry, even though the numbers globally are going down in work, that overwork in the U.S. is a greater health risk than work in any other developed country. So, like, literally outside of salt mines in some country somewhere, they're worried about us and how we work. And our very own CDC reports today that a third of American adults have serious sleep problems. Amen. Again, we laugh because what else can we do, right? Um, We feel this. We, We know this. This is the life that we live Today we're looking at a number of spiritual disciplines um, that I've kind of just given a tag to of still. Um, These are disciplines that um, slow us down, create silence, create space for us. And we're going to be looking at Jesus, who actually was a a fairly stressed out individual, at least by the definition of stressors on him. We, we, We can, you know, Jesus was human and felt stress hormones, but at the same time, a lot of the, the sinfulness that comes out of our stress, obviously he didn't feel, but had a number of demands on his time. We're going to get into some of Jesus' own life patterns, but before we do that, I'd actually like to address, um, if not an elephant in the room, just an elephant in my own brain that I need to get out there in front of you, and to do so Before we actually get to Luke 5, I want to tell you a story about Busy Betty. So it was 15 years ago or so, 
Um, I was at one of my first churches um, as the youth director. Uh, Chrissy and I were co-directing, my wife Chrissy, um, in a church in St. Louis. And we had a small youth group, probably about eight to ten students, and they were all middle schoolers. It was a Sunday morning, and we were talking about spiritual disciplines and intentional practices, just like today, um, in a lesson with them. And um, Chrissy had an education background. I didn't yet have any training in this. And so she had written this wonderful case study for us to teach with, and we entitled it Busy Betty. And basically what she did was to take a, a hypothetical sixth or seventh grader and expand their, uh, their schedule to the nth degree. This was a, a person, a, a child who woke up before 6 a.m. to get a run in for sports before catching the bus and going to school all day and then being a part of one or two extracurriculars and coming home and not having food with their parents and then immediately going and doing homework and falling asleep somewhere around 12 before waking up again five hours later and starting the whole thing over again. And Chrissy basically put all of our stressful uh, middle school and high school experiences into this one case study. And, and so I read this thing. And if you know how case studies work, um, they're supposed to be kind of absurd and, and kind of out there so that you can see a point. They're kind of a long form metaphor. So I read this thing in front of this group of eight or ten students, and I'm expecting, you know, they, they were a pretty talkative bunch for middle schoolers. I'm expecting this, you know, okay, I see this, yeah, oh, that's like me, no, that's dumb, whatever. Instead, crickets, silence, confused silence. And Christy and I were blown away because what we realized was that while we had, she had written this what we thought was an exaggerated case study. It was their lives. All of them in that room had a schedule basically like the one I had just described. And I can tell you 15 years hence, it's where many of our students even in this room today are. The reason I tell you this story and kind of the elephant in the room, or at least in my mind, is that For those students, that kind of life was just the norm. It was what was taken for granted. And so because of that, any discussion we were going to have about spiritual disciplines, intentional practices for spiritual health, was going to be a conversation about taking those practices and figuring out how to put them into that schedule. Now, on one hand, Scripture wants us to, again, we're holistic beings. It wants us to incorporate our spirituality into our entire life. We are not meant to be Sunday Christians and Monday through Saturday something else. We're not meant to uh, only pray at certain times or certain places. Paul talks about us praying without ceasing. Paul literally does a large amount of his own evangelism while he is literally making tents. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following talk about parents who are discipling their children in the ways of the Lord literally as they are walking with them into the fields and as they are cooking dinner with them. These are things that are incorporated into their everyday life. 
Conceptually, that's not a bad thing. But the reason I want to bring this up is this, that that schedule and the values of efficiency and effectiveness, the overemphasis maybe on them, as I just shared those stats, it's killing us. Literally, it is killing us. I mean, and that's without even me sharing with you the statistics of how suicide rates are going through the roof. And, you know, again, we could just go on and on ad nauseum about that. At some point, at some point, we have to be able to ask ourselves a real question. Is it possible that a lot of the detriment to our spiritual life is not from an inability of time management skills to shoehorn intentional practices better into our existing lives and instead becomes a place where we have to ask real hard questions about our lives. I get that that's hard. Ironically, next week is the week that we were planning on and still will talk about spiritual practices and disciplines that cost us something, where we're giving up things, things like fasting and tithing and that sort of thing. But I realize like, there's a relationship, isn't there? If we're just talking about the things we're about to talk about, prayer and solitude, I'll go ahead and jump to the list here for us. Prayer, solitude, meditation, study, rest, and Sabbath. If we're, if we're talking about these things, again, only as utilitarian things, that we want to fit into the rest of our life, well, that's one thing. But if we're asking, is my life even capable of holding these things because of all the other values I have implicitly and the culture I have built around my life to serve those values, well, that's another thing. There is not a cheap, easy answer for this, guys. I, I don't have that for you. I sit desperately in need of Jesus when I'm talking about this very thing. I, mean, I can feel my adrenal glands doing this even right now. I'm a stressed out parent. I work a lot. I care about things. I'm involved in a lot just like you are. So I'm preaching literally to the choir here. But I just want, I, I, I want to put that elephant out there because as long as we're working in a paradigm that just says, hey, Steve, teach me how to figure out how to pray better or how to f carve out time in my day to get prayer into my day, I think we're fighting a losing battle. Anyway, soapbox over. Jesus. As I said, Jesus is actually one of the more stressed out individuals that we see in Scripture, stressed at least by outside forces. Commonly, by the time we see him um, as uh, kind of in his public ministry, it seems that Jesus has demands on his time and on his life all the time. In fact, because time is not an element that um, the Old or New Testament writers seem to write about with the same kind of, not accuracy, but emphasis that we might have. I mean, we literally have watched television shows in the past, like 24, that put a clock on the screen. 
if you actually track in some of the Gospels, some of the things that we have learned as disconnected Gospel stories happen sometimes in the space of a weekend or even a day with Jesus. Jesus literally goes from feeding thousands into a boat where he passes out from exhaustion and then has to wake up and command the elemental forces of the universe. He does this within months of his friend Lazarus dying. He does that within weeks of the Pharisees and Sadducees beginning to actively pursue him to kill him. There's a lot going on with this guy besides the fact that he is also our Messiah and King and Lord and God. And three of the four Gospels at different times, not repeating the same story just in different ways, but at at different times in his life mention this very same thing. Even now, more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. If we are living lives similar to Jesus in the sense that we have, we are assaulted by people who need things, stuff that demands our attention and our energy over and over and over and over again, we desperately need time to seek God, time to listen, time to sit and delight and imagine. That has to be not simply a a thing that we add in when we really get time. It can't be a response to tragedy or to panic that we only do when our body breaks down and we have to. It must be something that is fundamental to our lives. This is what I love about Jesus, and I love it's, it's how the Gospels, Mark 1 talks about this. The book of Matthew talks about this in multiple places. Luke, again, here, that Jesus had a regular rhythm of getting away to pray. Now, this idea of he would withdraw, the, the, the Greek there, um, Jimmy's not here, so I can mention Greek, right? No, the Greek, the Greek here is a progressive it's the sense that he, he, he did this a lot. Again, he wasn't just responding to a stressful day or a panic attack. And Scripture says commonly he went to desolate places or he went to the wilderness to pray. It's not ta- trying to talk about some you know, camping habit that he had. It's not, though, also trying to mention like a backyard or not. Like he was able to get away enough at one point that the disciples literally can't find him. If you can get away enough on foot that 12 adult men who are actually freaked out about your life cannot find you, so much so that they leave you, they get in a boat, and they go fishing, you are good at getting away. Jesus does that, and Jesus actually has, uh, comes to them later. This is where he walks on the water to them. He comes from a time of solitude and prayer. 
We laugh about this, but God instills this into the rhythms and hearts of his people. This was the way things were supposed to be. We get this from the book of Genesis. We find, obviously, in Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, that God himself rests on the seventh day. I told my students this morning, we're talking about evolution and creation as well um, on Sunday mornings. One of the things that blew my mind about the Bible um, earlier on in my life was discovering that Genesis wasn't the first book of the Bible written. The Bible was not written in the same order that the books exist in. And because the audience to whom a specific book matters a lot, most biblical scholars actually believe that the book of Genesis was written by, or at least edited, compiled, um, given by Moses to the Israelites after they are wandering around in the wilderness post the Exodus, which means Genesis literally exists as a rewiring, if you will, of their own brains after 450 years of nonstop backbreaking labor, which obviously they're going to hate. At the same time, they literally grew up in a culture that said, Do you want to win? Do you want to win life? Do you want to win the world? Well, then you work this hard. And then eventually you get powerful enough that you punish other people and you make them work this hard for you. Little Israelite boys and Israelite girls would have grown up seeing their emaciated moms and dads who weren't getting good nutrition work themselves to death. And then they would look up and they would see this beautiful statue of an Egyptian god. And they would say, I want to be like that. I mean, what boy wouldn't? Moses offers through Genesis this other way, highlighting how, no, God, no, the actual God, not that statue there, but the real God who made the heavens and the earth and the sun that they worship and that over there and that over there, all of this. He rested. He wasn't as productive as he possibly could be in terms of time. Friends, that has to be something we take to mind and heart. It was built into the Israelite calendar. They had more festivals than you and I would know to shake a stick at. They were commonly called out and away from their work, away from their lands. In fact, once every seven years, they were supposed to leave a little bit of their land fallow. Why? So that it could rest and produce something better. Every 50 years, they were supposed to give back all of the debt that they had accrued, um, or, or, or at least you know, were relieved of it, which we hear because we, you know, we're Americans and we're huge on debt as like, oh man, I wish someone would come and take my debt away. But think about how many of you own stock. Imagine somebody every few years coming by and taking your whole, whole portfolio and saying, okay, we're going to give these pieces of this company back to the original owners. We're wiping all of that away, too. We're going back to, to the ground. Why? Because of this idea of resting. It was built into who they were. And it wasn't rest that resulted in Netflix binging. It was rest that had imagination and joy connected to it. It was prayer. It was worship. It was delight. I mean, imagine the number of times, you ever go on a vacation and you get to the end of the vacation and you're like, I need a vacation from the vacation that I just took. 
Because we don't even know how to rest anymore. We don't know what to do with solitude. Literally, books and, and, and podcasts that talk about pastoral sabbaticals say that pastors who, like Jimmy, took a, a sabbatical last year, pastors need two to three weeks to just stop thinking about all the things they're going to do once they get back from the sabbatical to actually rest on the sabbatical. Instead, we get Jesus, who not because of productivity or because he found some time in his schedule, but because he actually resisted doing more, healing more, teaching more, being with more people, he gave that up to go away and pray, to go away and be quiet. We see in Scripture patterns of meditation and study not meditation from an Eastern perspective, an emptying of the mind, but rather a focusing of the mind. Richard Foster says prayer and meditation in the Christian sense is thinking the things of God after him. What it means to, to be in patterns of drilling down the truths that we reflect on just for a few minutes here on Sundays into our whole lives. And then again, rest and Sabbath. I need this, and so do you. It is very possible that you will not be as productive an American citizen if you think about these things. I don't know. All of this is, these are real conversations for real people, right? I don't know, and I can't tell you or prescribe to you as a pastor what this means. I know it means I have to ask real questions as I grow up as a dad about what extracurriculars I want my kids to participate in, not because I believe that you know, it's, it's sinful to have them play a certain sport or a certain thing that does something at a certain time once in a while, but simply because I already feel convicted that my Sundays are so stressed out, I can't imagine what it looks like to jump from here straight into a baseball game. I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. For some of you, I, I can't imagine what it looks like to, to push on to that next promotion or to that next project or to that overtime out of hopes that things are going to get better only to actually have taken on a job that requires not less but more of your time and energy away from your family. I don't know. But I do know this, that in the midst of himself, in the midst of more important work, and very rarely do we want to say, right, things are more, more spiritually important or not. Vocations are important, right? But if anyone could say more important work, it was Jesus who had more important work than any of us. And Jesus resists the urge to do more and instead finds space to be still, to pray, to listen and not pray, to reflect on God's word, which as a good Jewish boy, he actually would have had most of it memorized. I'm not saying that's what we should have to do, but he would have been able to spend some of those large sections of time walking in the woods 
literally Bible study, thinking, listening, praying, listening again, crying, weeping, rejoicing, resting. This is part of what our God longs for us. And this actually, I fully believe, friends, that just as much as some of our moral decisions that we make, things about what we watch or don't watch or what we support or don't support politically or what we do or don't do, and we say those are the things that people will see in us and see that we're different, that we're Christians, that we're, we're a set-apart people. I actually believe that our, our pace and way of life is a way that people can look at us and go, what? Why? How? But it isn't easy. And so I I sit with you in it. I lay myself on Jesus' feet and say, please teach me. One of the things I'll tell you, you can pray for me about, and and I will pray for you about as well as we transition to the table. Um, The early church fathers talked about this holy leisure. This would have been a whole nother sermon for us to talk more about why Netflix does not equal rest. Um, But I stand accused of that as much as any of us, that even when I do say I want to rest, it really just means collapsing into a heap. But Psalm 46 The psalmist calls us, he says, Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Our big prayer with spiritual disciplines needs to not be, God, help me get better at this. Even God, help me get better at resting. But let's even practice it as we pray. And pray, God, help me be still and know that you are God. Let's pray that even now. God, we come to the table. And I just as our, our servers come up here, we, we ask that this can continue to even be a moment of stillness that's carved out in our service. We love you, and we're so thankful that you loved us first. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.